720 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Thanks so much for being with us today. Always a pleasure to share some Saturday time with you. We've got lots to do on the show today. We're joined first by Alexia Elahalde Ruiz, reporter at Chicago Tribune and regular contributor of this program because she's got a couple of stories this week that are so fascinating that I wanted to talk about. Welcome to the program, Alexia. So glad you're with us today. Thanks for having me, Amy. So the first story I want to talk with you about is this really interesting one that you wrote that is about businesses that are pushing to hire more people with disabilities and how doing so helps not just the employees, but the bottom line, too. Tell us about that story. Yeah, so um, basically, because the labor market is so tight right now, as we know, unemployment is quite low, employers are opening their eyes a bit to talent pools that they don't normally hire from. And one of those pools is people with disabilities um, who traditionally have an extremely high unemployment rate. Um, And in addition to that are just many people are not even um, looking for work at all because of just, you know, ideas about what people are capable of. And um, what's happening, though, is as employers feel kind of labor crunch, they are looking at to these people and they're hiring them and they're discovering that they are more loyal, um, more enthusiastic, and sometimes just do the job even better, you know, than kind of a mainstream employee. Right. And so in the story, uh, you, you know, you, you focus quite a bit on, there's even a subheading in the story, this is not just a feel-good step, which, uh, you know, I think is an interesting one, because a lot of times people get very cynical, and they'll, you know, they'll tweet things like, oh, sure, but there, so-and-so is just doing this thing for like a PR stunt or something like that. But in fact, there's a lot of data behind this, that this has, um, you know, a, a lot of impact on the bottom line, beyond just employee loyalty and things like that. Right, exactly. Well, for example, one of the um, big pushes is from big tech companies. Microsoft, for example, has been a leader in hiring neurodiverse talent is what they call it. And in the story, I talk about EY, uh, formerly Ernst & Young, that huge accounting firm, and they have established these neurodiversity centers um, in offices um, around the country. They're opening one in Chicago come January. And it's because they have a real need. You know, they they have increasing number of technology jobs to fill as everything becomes robotic and automated and so they have realized that they just are competing for talent um, for data scientists and whatnot with all the big tech firms and they're like we just we just need more people and who who's actually good at this and so they're starting to rethink job descriptions you know there are lots of tasks that people can do for example with autism that's that that's the target audience that they are going after because these are obviously sometimes people on the higher end of the spectrum um, are very capable, but just don't have some of the social, you know, graces that people are, are, are used to. And that's what kind of gets in their way. And so they're creating these centers that, that bring people in with autism who are very adept at the work um, and, you know, just have certain, you know, minor adaptations in the workspace to make them feel um, welcome and, and happy at work. And, and they're finding that, you know, the work is extremely good in addition to the loyalty and retention. I mean, loyalty is not like a soft and fuzzy thing. It's actually really important important because people don't leave and it's very it's very expensive to replace people so retention has been 100 percent at ey um, since they launched this a few years ago in their in their offices in other parts of the country you talked in the story uh to the ceo of envision unlimited which is a, a local nonprofit that's serving the disability community and, and kind of bridging it seems like bridging a lot of gaps here between employers and people with disabilities 
Yeah, so Envision Unlimited is one of the social services agencies that I spoke with um, as we were trying to kind of figure out whether they're seeing a shift in how employers are hiring. And and some social service agencies said, yes, you know, like we are seeing um, more uh, employers um, coming to us, you know, for help because they, they need they need people and they're looking for people with disabilities. Um, Mark McHugh is the CEO of Envision Unlimited. Um, he said that he's not seeing that and that employers are just as wary as they ever have been. Sometimes they think that um, people, there'll be more of a liability if they hire somebody with a disability that might be more prone to injury, for example. And so he says there's still a lot of barriers. There's a lot of transportation hurdles when it comes to people with disabilities because a lot of people don't drive um, and a lot of jobs are not accessible via um, train or L and public transit. And so then wages, you know, that figures into this conversation too with federal labor law allowing employers to get like a sort of waiver for different pay types. Where does that fit into all of this? So this is an extremely controversial piece of of the law. Um, Basically, it says that employers who want to hire people with disabilities can request permission to pay them less than minimum wage. And the rate that they can establish is based on the productivity of the person. So basically, if somebody with a disability can produce half as much widgets, you know, in, in the same time as somebody without a disability, they can be paid half as much. Um, and that is legal. And that is extremely controversial. You know, a lot of people, um, a lot of advocates say that that is unfair, it's antiquated, it's demeaning. Um, and but then on the other side of it, people um, also advocates for people with disabilities say, well, they, you know, there are some people who are just not going to be hired in, hired on in the private sector. They're just, you know, just not for whatever, can't keep pace with some of their peers. And this is a way to have work and to gain some money. And there's so much more about work than just a you know, wage. It's, it's a self-respect, it's purpose and all that. Um, so they think it's just an important option to still have available. A lot of um, the places where they pay this sub-minimum wage are in these so-called sheltered workshops which are often run by, um, you know, social service agencies. They have contracts with companies that need people to, like, put labels on bottles or to put, you know, bolts, no, nuts and, wait, bolts and screws, whatever, right. <laughs> twist things. And, um, and, uh, and so, and they pay piece rate, you know, three or four cents per piece and however many pieces you can create an hour is how much you um, make. And so they, they have them in these environments. And again, very controversial because it does, you know, give a place for people who maybe aren't going to, to find a job, um, you know, in the, in the quote unquote, you know, kind of neurotypical world. Um, but at the same time, it's like, is this really the best place, um, you know, for kind of like encouraging people to, to blossom. Right. The story opens, and for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to tweet this out after the program because I want you to read it for yourself. It's really, really fascinating. But the story that you wrote at ChicagoTribune.com opens with a, a, a kind of vignette of a particular cafe in Madison and how a couple has uh, really, really embraced this concept. I loved these people. Like, I, it was random that I got in touch with them. I had no idea um, what their story was going to be. I just knew that they had hired somebody with a disability. But what I discovered when I was talking to the owner, um, who's a woman, um, she used to would be a CTA electrical engineer, and she and her husband, who, she, who also was at the CTA, um, you know, opened this restaurant after they retired. They have two sons um, who have autism. They're twins. They're 28 years old. And so they personally, you know, have experienced what it's like for them to have tried to find jobs and get 
turned away, even though they're very intelligent. I met them. They're very intelligent and like good, you know, people and very hard workers. So, anyways, um, somebody, a social service agency, um, approached the couple. You know, like, would you be willing to hire somebody with cerebral palsy? Um, and then they had they asked, well, we also have some a guy with mild blindness. Would you hire him? And you know, at some point, somebody else came in and said, you know, would you hire my my sister? She has an intellectual disability. And because of because of who this couple is, and that you know, they didn't set out to to hire people with disabilities, but because they are familiar with the situation, they're like, sure, you know, why not? And they did. And so they have to like, they, it's a 125 seat restaurant. They have 26 employees and five of them have some kind of disability and they're just kind of integrated into the rest of the staff. Um, and it's just like, I don't know, the way that it, the whole place is, has a really good vibe. It's called Hidden Mana Cafe in Mapson. I'm just going to give a little shout out to them because I think it's just like the, the way that they conduct themselves and that they take care of their workers and, and appreciate the, the, the values, that, the, the skills that they bring because for example, the woman with cerebral palsy, um, her name is Arnita. She, you know, she has a little limp. She can't really use her hand. And, you know, she has, it's a disability, but she can fill the salt and pepper shakers and she can, you know, set the tables and she can put the jam packets um, where they need to be. And so, like, and that's great. She does that a couple of times a week. And then, like, she has a son who's, a, who's working the, the dishwashing, you know, a couple of people are working dishwashing. And they said that they run, you know, they can run around the other people who do dishwashing because, like, it's just, it's a very hyper-focused um, job. And, and and, you know, they have they bring that to to it. Indeed. And like I said, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to be sure and tweet this story after the program because I want you to read it for yourself. It is really, really a good one. All right. Alexia Elahale Ruiz, we're going to take a little break. And then when we come back. I want to talk with you about the story that you wrote about the window washer strike. So back here in just a bit on 720 WGN. <laughs> WGN. It's Amy Guth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch today. Thanks for spending part of your Saturday with me. I appreciate you for doing so. So we have been talking with regular contributor of this program, Alexia Elahalde Ruiz, reporter at Chicago Tribune. We were just talking a bit about businesses that are increasingly hiring people with disabilities and, and what that's looking like in business settings um, for the bottom line and for all sorts of things. But there's another story, Alexia, that I really want to talk with you about, and that is this window washer strike, because lots of things, I think, came out of this strike. For one, I think everyone was quite amazed, at least a lot of people on social media, like the, you know, anecdotal chat here, you know, the the anecdotal evidence I have, a lot of people were talking about, wait, they're pushing for that wage. I I assumed that the window washers made a fortune because of just how much danger is involved with that. So it seemed like when this conversation around wages for window washers emerged, I think the first kind of part of that, the first beat anyway, was I think a lot of people were surprised to learn what what window washers are paid. Yeah, I think that that is completely true. Um, so it's a little confusing. So so when the window washer strike first happened, so they went on strike July 2nd, so almost a month ago, um, the you know union, they were they're represented by Service Employees International Union Local 1, they were saying, you know, like that they were making $11 an hour um, and all that. That's not entirely true. Like apprentice, some apprentices start at $12 an hour, which is minimum wage. Um, and then they work the way up rather quickly um, from there. And then like the base rate, you know, for experienced window washer is about $20.50. 
per hour. Um, and they were saying that that's still way too low and we should be making more than that. And they were pushing for 25. They ended up getting 26 over five years. Um, so, so yeah, I think that it was very surprising for people um, that they could be making as little as 12 bucks an hour. But that's like a, that's a kind of a super entry level apprentice level. Mm-hmm. Even then, I feel like. I don't know. I feel like anyone that is willing to climb the side of a building <laughs> deserves hundreds oh, of dollars an hour. <laughs> yeah, and you would th- you totally and you think that you know, given like the danger of the job and how many people are actually capable of doing the job, you know, like a supply demand thing, you would think it would pay much more. Um, but yeah, it doesn't. You're right. Like even that twenty bucks an hour, it seems like it's pretty surprising given the nature of the job. Um, you'll talk if you talk to the employers, though. Um, you know, corporate cleaning services is one of the largest companies, and they'll insist that you know. This is seasonal work, and they end up making, you know, 60, 70 grand a year, even just working seasonally. So there was a lot of, um, you know, back and forth between um, the union and the employers about how much they're actually, you know, earning here. But the base rate is 20, 50 an hour. There's apparently a commission-based system that I don't completely understand that may make their actual take-home pay a little bit more than that. Hmm, like a per window or something like that. Yeah. Something, I don't know, yeah. Yeah, so you talked to um, you talked to a window washer who, you know, I think had a really great comment. It wasn't like anybody was asking for anything outrageous. I mean, the, the quote in the story, you know, he said that the, that the ending the strike here and, and reaching an agreement, it's not about wages, it's also about culture and, and sort of this, this wanting to just have a normal life and, and, you know, not having to work ridiculous hours just to have normal time with family and time off and things like that, which seems quite reasonable. What was the pushback against this in the in settling this strike as people were opposing that wage increase? What was their argument? Well, it was basically, so this is where it gets difficult to cover these stories because you're not in the room, you know, during the negotiations. But I think that um, the, it, was a, it was about the amount of money, you know, to increase. So the employers were offering a wage increase as well, but just not to the extent that the union was seeking and in the amount of time. So, uh, so, they had, so basically the union who wanted to go from 2050 to $25 per hour within three years and the um, employers were saying that's unprecedented and incredible. We can't, like, you know, that's just not what the job pays. You know, that's it's a very fast rise. And so the um, compromise in the end was, you know, to 26 over five years, which was slightly more gradual. And it was confusing because the union's like, yay, we won. And the company's like, yay, we won. We got what we wanted. And so it's like, I don't know. Um, but so the, the pushback was just that it was too much money in too little time. And there were other parts of the um, of the contract that they were, you know, negotiating as well. You know, like the, the window washers wanted more life insurance. They wanted, they were covered by 50,000. They wanted 100,000. They got that. I don't think that that was a big hang up. And they want, there was some health insurance stuff that they wanted as well, which turned out to be okay. It was, it was the amount of money and the amount of time that was hanging, um, that was holding it up. And the employers, like any employer will say, well, that's just too much, you know, that's going to hurt our bottom line. We're not going to be able to afford it or we'll have to, you know, charge more or whatever, you know, typical stuff. Right. Well, I I wonder about the life insurance part, right? Because I would imagine that somebody that is doing that kind of work is probably very difficult to insure, yeah, I, you know, that's a very good point. I didn't get into it more than the fact that, you know, they wanted more life insurance for reasons you can understand, sure. you know, um, but as far as like the rates that one has, that a company has to pay to insure them, you're right, that must be a, a, a factor. But that apparently that was a relatively um, seamless get. Yeah, 
Yeah. Well, it is really interesting anytime we hear about a, a strike and the, the terms of, of settling it. And so when are window washers going to go back to work now that things have, have settled? Yeah, so they voted yesterday to ratify the contract. The youth strike ended, and they're back to work right away. So some of them might have started last night. Some of them start this weekend or, or Monday. Um, but things will will get back as normal. So all those dirty windows that have been sitting there um, should be clean soon. And, you know, I, I thought what was interesting that you picked up on the, the part about the guy who said, you know, I just want to be able to, like, you know, spend more time with my family, take people on vacation. I think that's, like, just an important thing to remember when people are negotiating for wages. Like, it's not, like you have to be like in, in desperate poverty in order to deserve more money. You know, it's like the kind of the, the normal things that a lot of people who make a decent wage kind of take for granted as being like, of course um, I can, you know, afford to like, you know, take my family for a weekend somewhere like that. That is not for everybody. And it should be, you know, maybe that, maybe that's what should be the standard. Yeah, absolutely. Amen to that. Alexia Elahalde Ruiz reporter at Chicago Tribune. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. All right. We are going to take a little break, get you to news, all that good stuff back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. Hello there. It's Amy Youth here on the Wintrust Business Lunch. So, you know, those meal kits that you order, like it's a monthly subscription, you get them delivered and they're all these beautiful things. If you just like cannot with going to the grocery store and and maybe cooking is a mystery to you. And so these kind of take the mystery out of that and tell you exactly what to do and send you just enough and all that good stuff. Well, that is a really, really big business. But if you think about it, one part of that business that is unbelievably difficult is the logistics attached to that. Imagine getting all that stuff into a box, getting it shipped off and packaged nicely and to your door without melting or spoiling or wilting or any of those things that can happen to food outside of refrigeration. Indeed. Well, so Heather Haddon, who joins us now by phone, is a reporter at the Wall Street Journal and wrote about this very thing, wrote about the new and growing business of meal kits, why it is so darn difficult to maintain and what the future of that business sector looks like. Heather, thank you so much for being with us today. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much. So talk us through this because, you know, I, I know a lot of people who get meal kits and, and do that and kind of some some really go very deeply and do almost all their meals this way. Some people eh, dabble a little bit here and there. But I think one theme I have heard, I've never used one myself, but one theme I have heard from everybody I know who's used them is when you get that notification that the thing has shipped, there's a little bit of stress until it's in your house and at the door, in the fridge, and everything is okay. And so that seems like one really big, uh, you know, logjam point or, or point of difficulty for this business sector. Yeah, so there's a lot going on for meal kits. There's both the making of the meal kit, there's sourcing all the food that goes into the meal kits, and then, like you said, there's the actual delivery and shipping of the meal kit. So if you think about anything that could go wrong with weather or with traffic when it comes to delivery, that is something that meal kit companies told us that they've experienced. So there's been a lot of storms last winter, which meal kit companies had to deal with, including rerouting shipments, you know, thousands and thousands of boxes from one warehouse that was affected by the storms to other parts. There's traffic accidents that happen 
on busy highways and then your meal kit is stuck in a truck. Now, a lot of companies have invested in refrigerated trucks to help make sure it doesn't spoil. But like you said, every hour and minute counts really when you're trying to ship that perishable food to someone's house. Then there's all the stuff before it leaves the warehouse. So there's the sourcing of all the perishable goods. There's the getting it into all those little individual packages and bottles and assembling it all in a way that will transport as as well as possible. So there's a lot for these companies to think about. And so who in this space is thriving most? I think there's a lot of brands, there's a lot of kind of general ones, and then it seems like a lot have popped up to accommodate certain kinds of dietary needs, things like that. Who is kind of leading this and seems to have their arms around these kind of logistics the best? So it's taken a while for a lot of these companies to figure out how to do this well. And only now are some of the biggest players uh, at the brink of trying to break even. So the biggest companies are HelloFresh, based in Berlin, and Blue Apron, which everyone knows, uh, based in New York. They're both hoping to now break even either by the end of this year or next year. So they have the biggest scale in the business, which means they have by far the most extensive operations. But even for them, it's been very difficult. I think a lot of people maybe know that Blue Apron had some troubles last year. They opened a new warehouse. It was much more complex than they expected. It took a lot longer for them to get the operations up and running. They lost a lot of customers during the meantime. And only now are they really getting things moving there in a way that they like um, and that the all the technology and the the machines that they bought are starting to help. So that's what's going on with the biggest players versus the smallest players. You know, some of them are consolidating. There's been a number of deals and meal kits in the last year where primarily grocery chains or other food companies have bought them uh, to incorporate them in their own operations. And then others are, you know, like you said, dietary um, base meal kits. I spoke to the CEO of Blue Apron, um, Purple Carrot. That's a whole vegan meal kit experience. So there's some of these kind of regional or diet-based meal kits that are do still, you know, still doing pretty well. But it's it's mostly becoming these larger players, or there's some deals going on in the space. So in in reporting this story and, and investigating and looking into all of these different meal kit companies, what stood out to you as, as far as, you know, really innovative strategies that, that seem to be um, helping at all these points of, of logistics? Because that seems like a lot from, because um, it's not just a matter of getting the ingredients. There's, I'm sure, a matter of timing to make sure they all arrive at the same time and are equally fresh and all of those things. So that sounds like a lot. And so what... At, throughout that pipeline, what are some strategies that some of them have put into place to help them succeed? So all the meal kit companies said they've really honed in on their suppliers, so making sure they have a real range of suppliers who deliver fresh product when they need it, and also backup suppliers in case one you know, can't ship the product they need at the time they need it. Blue Apron said that they have something like 250 suppliers across the whole supply chain. That's a lot of folks to coordinate, but it also means that they get a lot of backup in case there's an issue to prevent a problem where, like, say, an ingredient just, just doesn't exist at the volume they need. Right. So that's one technique a lot of the companies have done. Then all of them are really experimenting with their own operations, and some of it is it's pretty cool in terms of the automation and how they can really now 
use machines to bag and, uh, you know, radishes and put radishes in little bags or put olive oil in a little bottle uh, is something that Blue Apron is doing um, in part of this automation game. So that's another technique. So some have devised some pretty unusual strategy, like Sunbasket, another company we spoke to. They have actually housed their operations in a cave uh, to try to keep things cold. So to save on uh, utility expenses, they've put their operations in a cooler environment, uh, which we thought was pretty unusual. Then a lot of companies have really invested in technology, so predictive technology that can get a better sense of what customers want to eat at different times of the year to balance their menus across all different options to make sure that it's, you know, it's the best uh, plate of options possible. So a lot of them are using AI and predictive technology as well. Very, very interesting stuff. And so what about the, as we look forward, what does the future hold for, uh, for all of these meal kit services? Well, there's still a lot of demand. Uh, customers clearly like these services um, and appreciate the convenience and, you know, being able to try new recipes. But I think this is a field that is going to continue to consolidate because it just is so hard to do these things. You know, the amount of capital you need to invest, the amount of expertise you need, the amount of uh, strategy you need. I mean, this is perishable goods that you have to get to people's homes safely in quantity every week. So I do think that probably the biggest players are going to be the ones that dominate this field. There'll be some niche players for special diets, and then a lot of the other ones will probably go out of business. Yeah. And, and well, and capital is, is I think, a big the big piece of this we, we haven't discussed yet. And that is, I mean, if you have some of these bigger players just now looking to break even, that seems like a really long time to ask investors to just hold on and let us get get it all going, uh, you know, in a time when we, we tend to uh, expect businesses to turn around and turn a profit pretty quickly. That seems like a long time. I mean, several years worth of startup time. Yeah, especially for these investors. A lot of them are tech investors, which are used to very quick turnarounds. You know, it's much different to invest in an app than it is to invest in a meal kit company. I mean, just the timeline is so different. So, uh, you know, there, there's still, this space still is getting a lot of investment, but investors I spoke to said folks are probably going to get a lot choosier about who they choose to invest in. They're not just going to spread their capital all through the space. They want to really make sure that uh, where their money goes has sharp operations, has a good demographic, has good uh, sticky rate with their customers. I mean, that's a big issue that a lot of these folks churn through customers. So they really want to make sure that they have uh, their homework straight before they give them money. And so is that churn, does, does it seem anyway that that churn is about people kind of wanting to try it and then the novelty wears off or is it something else? Yeah, exactly. I mean, people. a lot of these companies have given promotions, have tried to lure new customers with free trials or certain deals. And so people will come, sample it, say, oh, that, that was kind of fun, but then not subscribe. Another thing a lot of these companies are doing is now to push into supermarkets to try to get people who will do a la carte meals. So just pick up a, a meal from the supermarket but not have to subscribe uh which they see as a potential new source of customers to help them grow. Oh, so you could pick up the kit, at the whole kit at the store? Yes. 
So that's an, that's an interesting one because I do think people, uh, you know, as people have talked about meal kits, I know we've talked about them on this show before several times. It seems like that narrative always emerges of like, eh, I want some say, I want some control. I don't know. It's food. That's so personal. And it seems like that step might kind of alleviate some of that for customers. Yeah, that's the hope for these companies. I mean, it involves new logistical questions because then you're making a meal kit that is uh, delivered in a whole different supply chain to supermarkets. It's getting supermarkets on board to put shelf space for these meal kits. It's making sure that they have the the shelf life that could sustain being in a supermarket as opposed to going to someone's home and immediately into their fridge. So there's there's new challenges uh, involved in this strategy, but it's it's seen as a real hope for some of these companies. Indeed. Heather Haddon, thank you so much for being with us. Reporter at Wall Street Journal, we will keep turning to you for the latest about this and many other stories. Thanks so much. Thanks so much. All right, we are going to take a little break. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. WGN. Hello, it's Amy Guth here on the Winter's Business Lunch. You know, my friends, we talk a lot about, on this program anyway, about kind of big business and sometimes how businesses have like squashed the little guy, like the mom and pop stores. And we talk a lot about about wages and wage equity and, and all that kind of stuff. We talk about a lot of things like that on the show. There is a story, though, that is... Um, it will restore your faith in humanity, right? Because we, we have so much of like, oh, of course, this big company won. Well, this is just like a human being to human being story that it's not really business, but it is like, okay, there's hope out there. And it is this. So a woman named Susan McNabb said that she left her wallet in an Arkansas uh, Walmart when she was shopping and she had $160 of cash in the wallet. And she came back a short time later while it was still there, but the cash was gone. Okay, that is exactly what I would expect to happen, right? I one time like dropped a $5 bill out of my pocket, realized it about 20 steps later and turned around totally gone from the sidewalk. The, the right? total humanity story, but not the faith in humanity. Exactly. Okay. However, comma, she, McNabb, said that she was surprised when the police called her a couple of days later to say that someone had come by the police station, dropped off an envelope containing $160 in cash and a note that said to the lady that left her wallet at Walmart, please forgive me as I always strive to have integrity. And that day I failed miserably. And the police said the woman who brought the envelope into the station left without giving a name. But there it is. And so this the woman who lost the money in the first place, who had it stolen, said that the change of heart of the person who was stealing her money and then decided not to steal our money inspired her. And she's going to spend the money on helping other people. Isn't that a good story? It's a good story. That's a good story. I like that. It's also not the only one. So recently, um, a, a Pennsylvania Police Department detailed they said there's a very similar tale of remorse a um a letter came into the police department from a person who said they received a parking ticket 44 years prior and it included a five dollar payment for the ticket (laughs) isn't that something it reminds me of the seinfeld with the overdue library fine from like 1980 yeah right it's that one i don't know about the parking ticket part because i don't know we really get fleeced on those parking things but 
But also, they'll come boot your car. So we couldn't get away with it in this city for 44 years. Certainly not. They'll just, they'll come find us and take us off the road. But I love the wallet Walmart story because that is so lovely and kind of a little bit restoring my faith in humanity, which sometimes is shaky at best. <laughs> it's a little thing. I mean, $160, it's a lot. That can go a long way for people who need oh, it. You know what? When I, uh, about, let's see. Let's do some quick math here, kids. About 18 years ago, uh, when I was waitressing in New York City, I got this tip from a fellow waitress that you would take your tip money, if you had a, especially if you had a really good night, and put it in different pockets and like put a little bit in each shoe and a little bit in each side of the bra and each pocket and then just put a little bit in your purse so that if someone tried to rob you, you could just like, here, and here's 40 bucks and you, you'd be giving them something. Um, but not lose all your rent money. And sure enough, I totally got held up at the subway one time. And I, but I, you know, even then it was like, you know, you're, we're all, we're all working people here. So, you know, even then when you have to turn over money, it's, and if it's stolen, something like that, it takes a dent in the budget. It's, and it's, and it's upsetting because it's yours and it's not theirs, right? Yeah. So I have, if I found a wallet, I would totally return it. Yeah, I would I, not take the money. D- I have done that. I've had my wallet returned. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. I love that. I left it in a cab and the cab driver came back to the restaurant. Wow. Holding it. Here's your wallet. Here's your wallet. Yeah. Oh, that's very nice. so nice. Yeah. And yeah. what did you do? I mean. I think I had I had some cash in there. And I yeah. Gave him some cash. Sure. Of course. I've never found a wallet with money, but I did one time right out, like not far from here where our, our new studios are. Um, I found um, a driver's license on the ground. And I Googled the woman and couldn't really find her, but I kind of found her through her company Facebook page. She worked at a, a, she was a dental hygienist in Michigan. And so I sent them a message and I was like, hey, I just found this, you know, this employee's ID. I know it's the weekend, but I got it and I'm happy to mail it to wherever, thinking she was here on vacation. Turns out she came here to visit her boyfriend and they went to Vegas to elope. And she could get on the plane with a passport, but I guess not. She needed something about the ID. She needed that. So she had said something like, if the if the ID turns up, if it's just in my stuff or whatever, that's fate and we'll get married. And if it doesn't turn up, that means we're not supposed to get married. And so she, like her office contacted her. She contacted me and I overnighted her the ID and they got married. So you were the hands of fate. I was the deciding you were, factor. You were a fatal actor. Well, my hope is, and she wrote me the most lovely note, and I mean, she even like tracked me down enough and like Googled me. She wrote my boss a note that was like, I just want you to let you know what happened, which I thought was so nice of her to do. But then later I was like, man, I hope their marriage works, because if it doesn't, it would be like, you know what? We lost that ID. We were not supposed to get married. That woman messed it all up. So my hope is that they were totally. Well, you know how to find her. You found her. You found her once. I don't remember her name. I saved the text message that she sent me yeah. when she got it. Cause then I knew like, okay, it arrived at Caesar's palace. They're going to get married. Everything's cool. I have that text message, but I didn't put her name in my phone. So I maybe I we're remember. better off not knowing. That's right. I know. Who knows? Who knows? Well, there you have it. So there's your feel good story today. I know we talk about a lot of big business and crushing the mom and pops and things like that, but I thought I would throw in a little story like that. Well, so Scott Catoon is not here today because he went and got himself married as well. I hope someone mailed him his ID. Uh, so he got married, but John Hansen is here and we're going to talk to him here in just a bit and find out what's coming up on the program. 
But let us first take a little break. Back in just a bit on 720 WGN.